It's after midnight and dark and quiet in San Francisco. It's another difficult day in this pandemic. We just got word earlier today that the Prime Minister of the, of the UK, Boris Johnson, had to go into intensive care. And although he's not by any means my favorite politician, I wouldn't wish he's going through on anyone. The streets are quiet during the day and empty. There's still long lines at grocery stores and supermarkets, at some Trader Joe's. There's more worries about grocery store clerks are in danger of contracting the virus. At least one Trader Joe's grocery clerk has contracted it. So about the muni bus drivers. They're supposed to cut down the bus service in the city, but haven't yet. But here we are. It's time for one more episode of The Hyenas, A Tale of India. Episode 4, Chapter 4, Continue. approaches him and stops several feet away. You've found a new rifle, she says, smiling. The beggar squints before glancing away. He says nothing for a long while, then quietly and slowly he begins to speak. As I was leaving the city, I saw that a man was following me, he says, nodding his voice clear despite the cloth across his lips. He was carrying a rifle, and I was alarmed. I stopped, and he stopped. I went on, and he went on. I stopped again and walked back toward him. The beggar laughs silently. He seemed even more frightened than I was. He stood there, stammering and staring at the loaf of bread that you gave me, so I offered him the bread for the rifle. He said he didn't have any bullets, then he ran off, taking my bread. I turned away. It was dark, and I stumbled on the rifle. I hadn't seen him drop it, so I took it. He frowns and strokes the barrel. It's not a very good one, but it's better than the one I lost. 
You left it at our house. She sits down on a low bench near him and peers at him sideways. One of the hookah smokers grins at her and takes a long, gurgling drag of the serpentine pipe, watching her with his glazed, sleepy eyes. She is unaware of him. She presses her hands together and looks down and then away at the woman. They have finished filling their jugs with water and are walking back to the village, still chatting and quietly laughing, their heavy water jugs on their heads, their backs as lithe and firm as lotus stems, their bangles glinting and tinkling, their hips swaying softly. Dara turns back to the beggar. But what about ammunition? He laughs again, his silent laugh. I didn't have any butter to trade for bullets. She smiles. I could use it for a club anyway. You'll ruin it. Dara pauses. We could get some bullets for you. My husband hunts. I'm sure he could get you a case if you needed them. He frowns slightly. Let me ask him. He can be very generous. I know if I ask him. So your husband is the complacent type. She stops and stares at him. No, he definitely isn't that. They sit looking at one another for a short while after this. He in the dust with his ragged dhoti curled up around his knees and the claws around his face, clinging insecurely, his eyes probing and cool. She comfortably swathed on the dry wood bench, gazing at him uncertainly from behind her large sunglasses, her lightly made-up lips pressed with deceptive firmness shut. I would be grateful for the bullets, the beggar finally says. Otherwise, this lovely rifle will serve me in two ways only, as a cudgel and as a crutch. Abruptly, Dara says, apropos of nothing, you weren't so talkative yesterday. The beggar shrugs. A time for eating and listening, a time for speaking and serving. Children are playing at the other end of the village, and Dara raises her head to look at them. One of them, a little girl, is being chased by three boys, their backs hunched over, their teeth bright, their fingers arched and crooked like claws. At short intervals, a sound of distorted, chattering laughter comes from the boys, a manic and evil sound that cuts through the village quiet like the throng of a whip. The little girl cries out in joy at first, and then in fear, and then she begins to scream. Her mother comes out shouting at the boys and carries the little girl into her hovel, and the boys scatter and disappear. A moment later, however, Dara can see the eyes of one of them peering over a bag of millet propped against the wall of the last house. The eyes watch and wait while quiet closes again over the village. It's a very strange thing, hunting. I've hunted all over India, for Americans, for myself. The search for game is unceasing, the demand for patience great. You learn how to wait like an elephant, how to see like the hawk, how to spring like the tiger, how to defend like the jackal. Soon there is never a moment when you are not a hunter. Every glimmer of light is a prey, every shift of shadow a promise of one more day of life. 
Soon the arms think by themselves. As soon as your eye catches the light, your finger has already pulled the trigger. Your lips have already moistened with pleasure. Your belly is already heavy with food. Then the wait begins again. Your life becomes linked with all other life. The hunter is the scavenger at the board of life, Ali Shah. His eyes glitter. I feel like a jackal who has learned to control his laughter. It sounds as though you've always been a hunter. He nods and bends his head toward his shoulder. Even in the days when I lived in my father's house and listened to my masters reading from their books, my mind was always in the fields. I hunted for birds and small animals whenever I had the chance. So when it became necessary, scrolls of smoke unwind into the air from the three smokers of the hookah nearby. Two of them sway on their haunches to some slow rhythm they hear inside them. The other with a turban and a beard equally gray, the one from dirt, the other from age, sits with his eyes closed tightly, his chin raised, his lips firmly shut in a slight smooth smile of beatitude. The windless air is heavy with the spiced smell as of nutmeg and cloves and burnt honey of the smoldering ashen paradise of the Hashish, asks Dara, looking at him, in a mock, smockingly scandalized voice. He smiles. They're pretty brazen, she says. One of the men unloosens his calves and thighs and reclines, supporting his head with his hand, his head still swaying to the unknown music. From the hovels nearby, the women can be heard cleaning and making millet cakes. Do you ever, she asks. He glances at her, winks and shrugs. Why should I? The sky itself is my hookah. The stars are my hashish pellets. My father once accused me of being a drunkard and what I have never even tried. Anyway, he adds, add again lightly touching the barrel of the rifle, a hunter should be awake even when he sleeps. Something makes Dara think of the children she has just seen at play. Are they afraid of the hyenas here? Very. The beggar pauses and settles his head against the wall, his eyes gazing at the hard-packed dirt beyond his bare, calloused feet. When I came here last night, there were none of the fires, none of the singing that usually keep the knights in a village awake. There were no children out playing. The whole village was as tightly closed as an unripe mango. But where did you sleep? He points to the roof across the way. It slants down to within four or five feet of the ground and is woven of grasses. On the roof? Dara laughs. He nods. Didn't the owners object, she says, still laughing. Only when they saw the dimple in the morning, he replies, looking at her innocently. And indeed, the shape where he slept is still visible in the dry straw. Dara's laughter echoes through the hot air from one end of the small, dusty village to the other. Afterwards, she is all the sadder for it, and she says, You are very well spoken. It's a shame. No, he says, seeming to smile behind his mask. No, it isn't a shame. After all, I'm a Brahmin. She looks at him in disbelief. I'm not proud of it, but it is true. I sat in the temple and went to university. I learned of the order of the worlds and learned the eightfold path. I, too, felt the breath of Shiva on my cheek. I, too, felt the lotus of the Buddha beneath my feet. 
I have learned of yogi and guru and master and saint. I meditated and journeyed and meditated again. I found always and everywhere exactly what I sought. I always took home what I hunted, whether tiger or jackal. He pauses and seems to smile again at Dara, who sits staring at him as though fascinated. I began to the crest of worldly perfection. I rose to the crest of spiritual perfection. Now I am neither. I'm a hunter with bad weapons, a beggar in corrupt and beautiful Lucknow. All I need, all I have, is my hands. Dara continues to stare at him for a long moment and then looks away and down. Shortly afterwards, the beggar rises and invites Dara to walk with him to a nearby Dushari grove where both buy several of the rich, dense fruit with the huge seeds from a lean, untalkative farmer. They eat the fruit, talking quietly as they stroll on into the fields beyond. As they walk, they forget about the time and go wherever their feet lead, and many eyes follow, wondering to see the wealthy woman walking alone with the ragged beggar, whose only possession Beyond his doty and the mask of his turban is a rusty, dented rifle he holds stock up over his shoulder. They walk deeper into the flat, muddy countryside, over small, poor fields, around sharp, pale ghosts of trees, near uncertain threads of streams that feed into the Gotima, and down goat tracks that cut into and wander through high stands of green and yellowing weeds. At the end of one of these tracks, a particularly long one that winds in and out with the patience of a yogi around a grove and barren meadow. They come to the edge of a finger of boar that sticks into the more fertile land like a knife into a fruit. The narrow boar opens beyond them, white and clean and empty, with swirls of sand expanding into the weeds around them. In the distance, Dara can see a lake of sand with small dunes like stiff, motionless waves at its center. It is glaringly white beneath the afternoon sun, inviting in its clear and bright vacancy. The beggar turns to her for a moment, then sets off quietly over the sand. Dara hesitates before following him. The descending sun burns her as if at noon, the sand gathering the rays and the heat and focusing them, as it were, at the very center of the fullest fallen mirror of barren wasteland. As they walk across, across the sand into the dull white emptiness of the poor proper, Dara sees the trees and fields and groves ringing the lake of sand as though they were the boundary of life itself surrounding the small inland sea of desolation and peace. Suddenly Dara wants to stop and turn back, but the beggar strides on ahead of her and she continues following him. They walk to the center to the dunes, leaving a trail of disturbances behind them. Long, rope-like welts of sand dropped in their wake. He climbs the highest dune and looks back at Dara, who stands hesitating beneath him. Wait, she calls, trying to laugh. But all he does is look down at her, at the black evening stars of his eyes, and silently she rises to meet him. From that small eminence, the tallest naturally made one visible, they can see the minarets and the sparsely placed, uncertain, rickety high-rises threatening to collapse, it seems, at a single breath of the, of the withdrawing evening wind, and the domes and the palaces and all the horizontal sprawl of Lucknow behind them. Capital of Uttar Pradesh, once princely home of the Nawabs of Oud, once key center of empire, once land of kings of Islam, 
a cut flawed gem of the east. Before them stretches the great dry empty plains to the south, leading into the depths of the subcontinent, the clustered vine, the heavy musky grapes of India. Above them the sun descends, throwing unsteady shadows over the bore. They have wandered far from the village. Evening is coming on as they walk the tangled complex of trails and tracks, along the sides of orchards and groves and forest back, often getting lost momentarily. They say little to each other now, only cautionary remarks and carefully deposited monosyllables. Dara glances gingerly, almost fearfully, into the beggar's eyes. He does not respond. Once he bangs the stock of the rifle against a tree bough, and he stops to see if the wood has cracked. Dara stands before him like a phantom in the dusk, watching him examine the rifle. It is not damaged, and they move on. It is growing darker. Dara is carrying her sunglasses in her hand when, turning a twist in the trail, a bush brushes her elbow and she drops them. She stops and takes a step back, foot treading on them and breaking them. Oh no, she says, looking down into the now invisible path. His voice is very close to her. You won't be able to see even in the light now. It is entirely black. The fields surround them, around them are empty and silent. They stand staring toward one another, two unseeing shadows in the darkness. I know, she says, faltering. I... Only a moment passes, then she feels herself falling in the grass.